Welcome to the Creative Writers Tool Belt, the podcast that gives you advice and insights for your writing. I'm Andy Chamberlain, I'm a writer and creative writing coach, and in each episode, we'll be exploring an aspect of the craft together. You can find out more at my website, andrewjchamberlain.com, where you can also find out about the Creative Writers Tool Belt Handbook, which takes all the best advice and insights from the early episodes of the podcast and distills them into one volume. I hope this podcast is helpful to you on your writing journey. If you do find it useful, please do subscribe and consider leaving a review as well wherever you downloaded it. So thank you for joining me and here's this episode. Hello and welcome to episode 172 of the Creative Writers Tool Belt. I've always believed that there are important lessons for prose writers to learn from poetry. And I also think we can always gain something from the joy and discipline of listening to good poetry. And so to test this belief, in this episode, I'm talking to the teacher, poet and translator, Erin Puchigian. Erin has a PhD in classics from the University of Minnesota and an MFA in poetry from Columbia University. In this episode, we talk about why anyone might want to write poetry why poetry is like music and should be heard as music, how we can push out into the world with our work, whether we're poets or prose writers. We talk about good and bad ambiguity and what novelists can learn from poetry, including the use of rhythm, compression of language and the use of the full range of senses in description and setting, what Aaron refers to as the sensorium. This is an episode for those who love poetry or at least see its potential to teach us something for our craft. I hope you enjoy it. Here it is. Okay, Aaron, welcome to the Creative Writers Tool Belt. It's great to have you on the show today. Thank you for having me, Andrew. I want to start by just asking if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, your background and your work. I have been um, a poet since age 18, and I'm 48 now, so I, 30 years of it. Um, I've only recently started looking back on all of that time. <laughs> I'm distinctive as a contemporary poet in that I am a formalist. I write in meter and rhyme, um, which is not um, in vogue in many circles right now. But what sets me apart, I think, as a formalist is that I use very contemporary living language, um, contemporary American slang. And so an interesting mix having those traditional forms and then the very contemporary slangy language on top. I'm also interested in writing in all genres of poetry. And so for the most part now, poetry has been um, its empire over literature has contracted primarily just to the lyric poem. When we think about poetry, we primarily think of short or fairly short lyric poems. And I've written a number of collections of lyric poems, but I'm interested in reviving genres that used to be in poetry, that used to be verse, such as verse drama, for example. Um, I dote on Shakespeare and I dote on <laughs> well, some of the romantic closet dramas um, by Shakespeare. 
Shelley and by Byron. And so I have recently um, written a tragedy in verse on a very contemporary theme in which there's a Greek chorus, but they're not Greek. They're a chorus of protesters who eventually lose. They're trying to prevent a tree from being chopped down and it is chopped down. And that's why it's a tragedy. It's a, um, it's I a also, tragedy yes, then, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Um, and then they lament over the stump for one act as well. Um, I'm also really interested in revising um, verse narrative. Our earliest poetry, our early, earliest literature in the West is um, Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey, which is both poetry and narrative. However, with the rise of the novel in the late 18th century, early 19th century, eventually um, prose supplants verse or poetry as the major vehicle for narrative. And so one of the last really popular verse narratives is something I'm very fond of. It's um, Lord Byron's Don Juan, for example, um, was a huge sensation and a popular success. But that was right towards the end, getting towards the end mm. of the popularity of verse narratives. Um, Tennyson, Alfred Lord Tennyson, had some some success. But by now, um, verse um, narrative, for example, um, verse novels, as they're called most often, are rare. They're an anomaly. Mm. Um, and they're treated as sort of yeah, freakish aberrations <laughs> when they come out. And so I'm trying to reintroduce them into the mainstream of literature and um, trying to reintroduce um, verse drama also, if I can, into, I've worked a lot, fair amount in the theater and worked in translation mm. of ancient Greek drama. And so I have some connections and I'm hoping to get this, my verse drama staged. Okay. So I wanted to ask you, why do you write poetry? What, what is it that provokes you into doing that? I had, when I was 18, I, I described this as a religious experience. When I was 18, okay. I was sitting um, out front of the um, ivy-covered um, brick building on my campus. I was a freshman, and there was the beginning, was the section in the humanities textbook on the Greeks and the Romans, and there were the beginning um, lines of Virgil's Aeneid, an epic in Latin. I didn't know Latin at the time. And the sky became brighter and it became clear to me that I was supposed to spend my life writing poetry and that I needed to learn um, Greek and Latin as well mm -hmm. if I was going to compete. Um, I'm a bit of an Anglophile, the primarily yeah, British poets that I liked very much who had that classical education. And that's pretty much what I've done. And so when I write poetry, I'm trying primarily to recapture that experience of all my synapses firing at mm. once, mm. or as Emily Dickinson puts it, um, when she defines poetry, feeling that the top of your head has been blown off. <laughs> um, that's that's her definition of poetry. I know it's poetry when I feel like the top of my head has been blown off. And I have that experience. And so I understand what she's getting at. And so when I write, I try to recreate for myself that same ecstatic experience, and I try to package it in a way in form and meter in rhyme so that I can preserve it and hand it on to somebody else. And they hopefully can have a similar experience. Now, I know that you've talked about poetry in the context of it being a bit like music. And I wondered if you could expand on that a little bit for us. How is poetry like music? 
Yes. Some poets lead with their ears and other leads with different senses. Um, I tend to lead with my ears. I'm very much an oral and aural poet. Um, and so when I compose, for example, I compose in terms of musical motifs. Almost I was a composition, music composition major briefly before I was a poet. So that works in similar ways where you compose motifs and then you combine them and you modulate from one to the other. And then you come up ideally with this sonic gestalt that is a whole that is more than the sum of its parts um, so that it coheres and becomes a work of art. Um, and that's um, one of the things, um, and perhaps we'll talk about this later, um, that I encourage poets to develop as a skill is to think about poetry, the words in the poem as pure music. Right. Mm -hmm. You want to have sound and sense reinforcing one skill you should have is to be able to just think about the sounds of the poetry as if they're just music. Right. Not considering the sense and trying to create interesting patterns of assonance um, that is similar vowel sounds and alliteration and rhyme so that it's interesting it's delightful to listen to your poem even if somebody doesn't know english right it's interesting mm. just mm. as a musical composition and so yes there's that quality so that it's pleasing to listen to exciting to listen to just as music is one skill the poet should develop um and i think about it that way often as i'm composing right um and then you want to get out of that once you start worrying about what the poem's about and what you're actually going to say right in addition to the music and then you want these correspondences and this reinforcement mm. between the sound and the sense the thought occurs to me as you were saying that do you think therefore that poetry is best appreciated heard rather than read off a page I, I do very much. And I'm excited that um, for a variety of reasons, the aural yeah, readings of poetry have become more accessible with yeah, um, audible.com, for example. Um, I li can listen to great actors reading poetry as I'm walking down the street rather than music. Mm. Um, and we can on YouTube, we can access T.S. Eliot reading The Wasteland mm. himself or W.H. Auden reading his own poems himself. Um, and so I'm excited about that. Every day I listen to um, Jeremy Irons reading T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland as I'm mm. walking to my writing space. <laughs> and so I'm hoping we can recapture that. Originally, when poetry was invented in Western culture, it was pre-literate. That is, it existed before people knew how to read and write. And so it was orally composed mm. and then handed down by word of mouth before it was written down. Right. And in a sense, we can recover that now through technology. And then there are also a number of subgenres of poetry. This is a um, slam poetry is pretty popular um, in America, at least. And that has a very oral emphasis. Mm -hmm. And so there has been a bit of pushback. Poetry um, in the 20th century, primarily free verse poetry, became a visual presentation on the page. But readers um, have become more and more interested in recapturing that mm. aural experience. Mm. And so there's mm. a sort of renaissance of that as I see it right now, primarily due to um, technology. Mm. Now, there's another point that I know you make that I want to discuss, uh, um, which is around you encouraging poets to kind of push outward with, with the possibilities and the suggestions of their work. And actually, 
I'm quite interested in this in part because I think this might be a point for us prose writers to take note of as well, actually. But I wondered if you could just explain to us a little bit by about what you mean by that when you talk about poets need to push outwards with their suggestions and possibilities in their work. Generally, when students are taught to write, they're taught, and this is good, right? They're taught to be absolutely precise, which is very good advice for a writer, but also to avoid ambiguity. But what I've mm. learned in writing poetry is that you want to cultivate a rich ambiguity, right? Rich impossibilities. Bad ambiguity as opposed to good ambiguity. <laughs> Bad ambiguity makes the work muddy and unclear, right? But rich ambiguity means that there are multiple interpretations possible, right? That there are multiple possibilities um, active in the text. And especially for the conclusion of the poem, the instinct for a lot of poets is to tie everything up, wrap it up, and put a bow on it. And that's what you want to do with an analytic essay, right? Have a strong conclusion mm. um, and leave everyone satisfied. But with poetry, at least the poems I like the most, when I get to the end, in a sense, the poem keeps going. And that I keep on thinking about the possibilities and what those last lines meant. And so um, that's what I mean. Yes, I'm interested in this expansiveness of poetry, especially when it comes to conclusions. And so you want to have, yes, as I said, you want to cultivate ambiguity that is rich in possibilities. Mm. Um, mm. But it's it's a skill that's learned. Mm. And early on, most of the, when you first start writing, the ambiguity you get is bad ambiguity, <laughs> where it's simply not clear what the poet is talking about. And you want to mm. avoid that and use um, ambiguity, yes, only to trigger multiple responses. In my mind, it kind of triggers the idea of like bad ang bad ambiguity would just lead to confusion and confusion. Yes, but good ambiguity might be almost an enticement into thinking more about and thinking creatively about the work and trying to kind of be enticed by it and to kind of wrestle with it a bit in a good way, rather than just going don't understand what any of this is that that two very different thing two very different reactions i think i was just teaching one of my favorite poets um sappho um in translation and i enjoy i've been teaching that for years now my goodness mm. for decades and i enjoy doing it and it's true it sounds almost sounds like a cliche but it really does. The poems do get deeper each time I go back to them. And I'm excited to teach it just because the students will come up with possibilities. And just when I think I'm kind of arrogant about it, I've come up with all the possibilities <laughs> of interpreting this poem. A student will come up with a new one. Yeah. And then I'll have to go even deeper into the poem. But yeah. Sappho's great in that she's um, partly it's there in the original and partly due to the fragmentary nature of the um, remains of her work. Um, mm. She's rich in ambiguities as well. Mm. Yes. I'm thinking there might be something in that for um, prose writers, novelists as well, that actually we, we could probably take that advice and bring it into our work as well in terms, oh. in terms of like character and setting and theme and all kinds of stuff, I suppose, as well. Yes, certainly. And I mean, I can I, mean, I can think about it in terms of like genre fiction, where there are uh, in a mystery novel, I love mystery novels, and you um, a good mystery novel can use ambiguity in order to make mm -hmm. yeah, um, have a, uh, an array of suspects.
right? And rather than it being clear from the very beginning who actually did it, right? And that's an, uh, a cultivated ambiguity mm. um, that mm. really pulls people in, um, mm. as I see it, in genre fiction. <clears throat> so I want to turn for a moment now to what novelists can learn from poetry. And I'd thought of a few things, but I want to just explore perhaps them and other ideas that you've got around this. Um, so, I mean, the main one for me would be something which I talk to other writers about a lot, which is sensory language and language across the whole spectrum of senses. Don't, don't just tell them what they're seeing. You know, it's, it's touch, it's smell, it's taste, it's the whole, and just the power of sensory language. And then issues around the rhythm of the words and also good economy of language. So a lot of writing can be improved by just stripping it down. And I imagine some forms of poetry require that. So, I mean, there's there's those things and there may well be others. So I wondered if we could just kind of explore what you think are those, those good disciplines from poetry that we should be attending to as well. Yes, certainly compression, or as you put it, economy of language is one virtue of poetry from which prose writers can learn. Mm. Also, um, I guess, yeah, a number of ideas have come to mind. I, Poetry, at least lyric poetry, more often than dramatic or narrative poetry, organizes itself differently. It has its own logic. Generally, when one is, say, writing a short story, right, one is in this discursive narrative mode. One is going from point A to point B to point C to point D in narrating events. But poetry, more um, just as often, or even yeah, more often than lyric, gives you a whole different logical structure. Right. And so you can have a sonic arrangement like I was talking about where the motif has a refrain like a chorus in a song, for example, mm. that brings it around and has a repetend, a repeated um, refrain. Or you can, you can have poems that crystallize around an image as a catalyst. Um, that's another analogy that is used for lyric poems. And it's interesting and in that, that those were the major modes I operated in until I started writing narrative poetry. It took me about 10 years to figure out how to write a verse novel. And there have been many disastrous attempts um, <laughs> before mine because poets generally can't stick to the plot, right? They get lost in all kinds of details and descriptions and games that they're playing on the side. And so what I had to do was sort of rearrange my brain and storyboard the plot points and tell mm -hmm. myself, right, you can go crazy poetically on inside this one page of a Word document as long as you accomplish this plot point, right? As long as you get the work of the story done. Yeah. Because my brain yeah. was so used to alternative, non-discursive, I guess I'll call it, modes of organization. Mm -hmm in mm. lyric poems. And so I had mm. to train myself to stay on task. And yes, I was happy with the results. Also, I think of literature primarily as escapist. And what one wants is an immersive experience. I'm going to yes. draw another analogy from technology, right? Into yes. a virtual reality. One wants an immersive experience. And by emphasizing then um, the senses one can provide in poetry, this, by emphasizing the sensorium, as my one of my teachers put it, right? One can provide that immersive experience. And the more, in a sense, the more sensory details you get, the more showing you do rather than telling. That's a big distinction yes. we use in, um, in creative writing, right? Yeah, yeah. The more showing you yeah. do yeah. instead of telling. <clears throat> um, because whenever you tell, you, in a sense, pull the reader 
out of the immersive experience and just narrate it to them, right? But you want mm. to be in there experiencing it. Mm. And so um, the more sensory details you use, the more convincing and immersive the experience will be. And there was a, a movie that was yeah, very popular in America. I'm sure it was popular in the UK as well. On the movie, The Matrix, um, 1999. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the yeah. first one's very yeah. good in which yeah. our reality is an immersive reality right mm -hmm. outside of a ugly later reality <laughs> um and i always think of myself then as an artist trying to create that immersive reality i even mm -hmm. remember a character in that film saying as he's eating a steak i know that the steak isn't real right i know that i yeah. just have code yeah. telling me that it tastes a certain way but i want but i still think it tastes great and it's convincing yeah. and when yeah. i write a poem and i'm emphasizing the sensorium i want to fully i want to create a fully immersive experience and and the senses are good for different things we tend there's a kind of a hierarchy of the senses um, we tend to lead with our eyes, um, visuals, the most common kind of information to work with in literature, then auditory, then tactile. But very interesting in poetry and interesting in literature in general are the, the last two, olfactory for the sense of smell and mm. gustatory for taste. And they're particularly rich in evoking memory. And so um, I've read a fair number of poems. In fact, I was reading one just today in which the smell of something evoked a childhood memory mm. in um, the mm. author. In, the, in, in this particular poem I was reading, it was the taste of spearmint gum that came out of his mother's purse. And it said it smelled, <laughs> he said it smelled like purse. And I was like, I understand exactly what you're talking about. It's a yeah. kind of leathery, yeah, yeah smell. Yeah, it's and brilliant. so um, it brought him, yeah, it brought him back um, to his childhood memories. And so, yeah, olfactory and gustatory are really good for that. So, yes, to answer your question, certainly prose writers can learn compression from poets. And um, the example I always think of is Ernest Hemingway um, working with Ezra <laughs> Pound and the modernists. Mm. Mm. And he, in his mod um, early modernist phase, has a really compressed style. There's not mm. one article, one the or uh, that doesn't need to be there. It's absolutely efficient and compressed. And I see it as mm. very poetic. Um, second, then, as I mentioned, right, emphasizing the sensorium can create this immersive mm. experience. Mm. And poetry is particularly good with that. And then finally, this is exclusive to the senses of smell and taste. They're particularly good at evoking memory i have mm. found yes yeah and i think there's some psychological evidence for that isn't there uh, that that smell and taste are so so connected with with memory and one of the things i uh, i've talked about on this podcast and i talk about in in my book is when we're dealing with settings and scenes we need to be sparse and specific by which i mean don't write a whole load of detail but pick a few things and really really zero in on the the specific detail and the sensory detail of them. Um, you know, the the chewing gum that smells like purse is is a brilliant example of that thing because it's kind of, so long as you can kind of connect with it, as long as the reader can connect with that, if they can connect with it, it's got a very powerful, it's got a, quite a punch to it, hasn't it? That's brilliant. So um, we've talked about poetry and we've talked a little bit about uh, prose now. So perhaps it would be good to, to pause for a moment and hear some poetry. Um, so I wondered if you could just read it, one or two of your poems for us and give us whatever introduction and context you want to for it. 
These two poems come from my collection, my most recent collection called American Divine, um, which is an attempt to bring old time religious feeling, old polytheistic religious feeling, a sense of the numinous, of the presence of the divine, the imminent presence of the divine to American culture and to experience. Mm. And so it's a, an account of a series of quasi-religious experiences or religious experiences. This is a poem called American Osiris. Dead God, dead God, come alive on the count of number five. One, two, three, four. I sense dejection in the vegetation. I get how red a sun is going down. And there they go, the dogs all over town, howling like widows. Ambush, mutilation. Dump sites across state lines. The deed is done. Street lights will keep on burning all night long in memory of you. The youth, the strong seed giver, the delight, the vital one. It's useless, but I want to strew funeral flowers, the orchid, the iris. Traffic on the avenue is sighing for the lost of you. American Osiris. I smell the crime. In Jersey, there's a scow tugging like rubbish, your indignant liver up the Passaic, post-industrial river. And all the sap in you has turned crude now and soaks from ruptured pipes into the prairie. Your sex is wild boars goring Arkansas. Who axed you? Handsome, who has dumped you raw on this democracy, this cemetery? Sorrow has spread from coast to coast like a saccharine song or a seasonal virus. You are what weighs on us the most, darling and carcass, god and ghost, American Osiris. Dead God, dead God, come alive on the count of number five. One, two, three, four. The second poem I'll read is the um, conclusion, the sort of farewell poem for American Divine. And um, yeah, it doesn't need much of an introduction other than to say that, um, yeah, since I have written it, I have yet to figure out exactly what my next book will be about. This came to me and was an apt conclusion for that book. And now I'm a little worried. Um, I've worked on other things <laughs> like plays and narrative. But what will the theme for the next book be? We shall see. This is called The Living Will. Too grizzled now to play the wunderkind, too apt to sit where I have often sat. I, Aaron Von Puchigian, now that my nose has thickened and my hair has thinned, do hereby most imprudently rescind the rule book I propounded, all my cecil, growths, and impediments, so that a vessel beholden only to the waves and wind, I may be free to drift out of the bay. Hereafter, I shall whiff the fragrant coasts of Araby, Dundea and Cathay, and further out beyond the round world's spalling margin, hear Odysseus's ghosts squeaking like hinges. 
hear the sirens calling. So I'd like to explore those just for just for a few minutes in in the context of the poems that they are, and maybe maybe what I'm thinking about what I might learn from my work from that. Um, and you know, there's a few things that that spring to mind, and obviously I want to hear. You say so. I was very struck in the first one, American Osiris, by mournful, almost community mournfulness of it, like the dogs, the dogs howling like widows. I thought was brilliant. <laughs> Look, well, kind of, you. I mean, that comes back to the kind of spearmint in the purse, almost. Does it? You kind of connect with that. You, yeah, I can get that. That that yes. kind of that detail. Thank you. Yes, it's called. Um, it's um, a technique I I learned actually from the ancient Greeks um, from a genre called pastoral elegy. Um, in which you lament the death of a famous shepherd, um, actually, pastoral <laughs> elegy. And a good example of that in the um, British tradition is um, John Milton's famous poem, Lycidas, which is mm. cast as a pastoral elegy. I do a lot of things in that poem you're not supposed to do any longer. Um, one is discouraged from using something called pathetic fallacy, right? That is making nature express the emotions of a character. And I went mm. overboard with pathetic fallacy. Um, it sounds worse than it is. It's pathetic fallacy. Um, yes, it sounds... Um, it sounds contentious went, almost, isn't it, that phrase? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I went and, overboard with it on purpose um, because it's so yeah. prominent in that um, pastoral elegy. And it's as, I wanted it to be as if the whole nation were lamenting the mm. death of mm. this figure. And mm. so I try to bring up different states all over America, Arkansas, mm. New Jersey, mm. for example, um, the prairie. I talk about the Central Plains states. And I tried also in this poem, yes, to be expansive. Um, I was a regional poet for a long time. I grew up in a rural area in North Dakota. And then I moved to the big city to mm. Manhattan, um, and I wrote a book called Manhattanite. And then I, as a professor, I lived all over the country. And so now what I'm trying to cultivate, though it may sound arrogant, is the ability on occasion to speak with a national voice. Um, the mm -hmm. American poet who does that most often is Walt Whitman. He's the great forefather of this voice. Walt Whitman and I don't have much else in common <laughs> in terms of our poetry, but we have that. And he's very useful for that in mm -hmm. his poem, in Leaves of Grass, for example, right? He is speaking. It's the American epic. He's speaking mm -hmm. for the entire country. And I try to do something like that in a more um, contained sense in this poem. I guess as writers of all kinds, we can we can put elements together which build up to a theme or build up to an idea which is shown rather than told. And that's a great if you can do that, I think that's very powerful, you know, in in a novel or in, in poetry. The other thing, I mean, the other one you read, Living Will, well, both of them struck me as very raw and visceral pieces of work. And I think again, there's a lesson there for 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 us novel writers. And and uh, but it was also extremely personal. Like you were kind of revealing yourself in that that particularly at the beginning of that poem, it was almost like, you know, kind of, this is me. I mean, you know, you, you put your name in it. It couldn't get much more personal than that, could it? And so in, in ancient, um, I talk a lot about ancient Greek and Latin literature. I'm particularly fond of it. That's actually what is called um, a spragis, S-P-H-R-A-G-I-S, spragis. And it means a seal. And the last poem in a manuscript of poems, in a scroll mm. of poems, right, would often contain um, the poet's full name or the poet's name. 
And okay. so the um, readers would know then that this is where it ends, but also that everything that came before it belongs to this poet. Yes. It's a way of including a title page before there were books as we understand them, right? Including hmm. credits before there were books as we understand it. And so I intended that. I named myself, fortunately, I have that middle name, so that's metrical, Aaron Von Puchigian, instead mm. of just Aaron Puchigian. So it works out in iambic, yes, as a kind of sphrogus for my collection. I try to work in every mode. We call this, you're right, that is a confessional poem in a sense. Mm, um, mm. We talk about the confessional mode a lot in contemporary poetry. But I admit straight off that the figure I've created is a persona. And I'm aware to what extent it's mm. a persona. Lately, it's been a, the persona of a Manhattan flaneur. I'm Baudelaire walking around Manhattan having these experiences or whatever. Um, and that happened partly because I translated. I just translated Baudelaire. Mm. So I had a really close relationship with him. But it's good to keep in mind, yes, these personas that are presented. Um, I think again and again about Lord Byron's Don Jewett. Is that, is, that, is that popular in the UK? Do people still read that? Some people would be aware of it. They might even pronounce the title differently. You know, it's kind oh, of... Don we Juan might have is how we normally say it. Tomato, but tomato moment or something. To rhyme, to rhyme it, yes. Um, <laughs> Don Juan, yes. Yeah. Um, but it was mentally popular, and I like that because um, Byron has creates this amazing persona in the course of narrating mm. that, um, this romantic persona um, that in a sense, he, I mean, in a sense, it killed him. He couldn't escape it. He died fighting in Greece. And that's noble. And I respect him very much. But one wonders how much he was pushing or being pulled by this persona that he had created. Mm. I'm really interested in this persona idea. So within the novel, let's say, for me, one of the real challenges is to create the compelling character all characters are personas to an extent in a novel, but to create efficiently and well, efficiently may not be the quite the right word, a persona so that the reader can go, I understand that character. I get them. Even when you haven't said a great deal. And I think there may be some clue in, in different forms of poetry as to how to reach that. Like how, how did you create that persona of you so, so quickly with, with, with the, you know, the compression that you use to, to create that poem? Normally, I mean, I confess, I'm relying on types or maybe even archetypes when creating that persona so that the reader immediately has something to latch on to. Mm. When I was a regional poet early on, because um, I happened to grow up in North Dakota, I know, in Armenian and North Dakota, I don't know when I was doing that. <laughs> I cultivated this backwoodsy, countrified voice. I'm writing about the snow in North Dakota and, thing, and things like that, the desolation of mm. North Dakota, mm. a lot <laughs> about that. And we have a lot of types of regional voices, country regional mm. voices in American poetry and especially in formal poetry. The most prominent of those is Robert Frost, for example, who's, yes, this, um, yes, Northeastern character, right? Vermont, New Hampshire, a New England character. And he's backwoodsy. Um, and then also I had a mentor who grew up in North Dakota and he cultivated a similar voice and he was very influential on me. The risk mm -hmm. though, with the regional voice, so with creating a poetic persona, this is sometimes in poetry, um, this is called finding your voice. Have you heard that idiom? Right? Mm, yeah, um, definitely. Sometimes, yeah, yeah. yes. And sometimes um, 
More often than not, though, I mean, I encourage poets to find voices for a variety of reasons, partly okay. because find your voice, especially with um, the way a lot of at least contemporary poetry works in America. Find your voice more often means find your shtick, right? Find some little gimmick you can repeat over mm. and over again mm. that editors like. Um, it's not really a voice like Robert Frost. That's one reason I'm uncomfortable with the find your voice. Yeah. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Um, but also, even in Robert, the great Robert Frost case what one finds towards the end is he's just speaking proverbs and versifying epigrams and he's no longer writing great poems and it's because mm. he's exhausted the potentialities of his idiom he created this voice it's a great voice we love it it's an american voice but eventually he had um exhausted all of its possibilities and so he had nothing more to say in a sense but kept on yeah. writing late into life and it's similar with my mentor whom i won't name but sure. what i found he cultivated a country hunter bird hunter persona who loves dogs and is um was conservative um and a variety of other things and the first two or three books are great and then he's just doing the same tricks over and over again because he was unable to grow. And so I'm really worried about this for myself. Yeah. And, it's, and the ways I get, a couple ways I get around it, translation is one, because then you can explore voices other than your own, right? And you can steal yes. Yes. from those voices and expand your own range through translation. And another way I've been trying to expand my persona or my voice, if you will, is to read poets that when I first read them in college, I hated, right? And I dismissed them. And so I wasn't big on the beat poets who are wildly popular in America. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I had just a knee jerk aversion to them and never ended up reading much of them. And I realized that I've gotten everything I'm going to get from the poets I love, from Yeats and Auden and Larkin yeah. and Frost yeah. and Richard Wilbur. And in order to keep growing, I need to because people like these poets for a reason. Um, I have to read the poets that I had an aversion to and um, steal from them as well. Mm. Um, so mm. I've been reading, yes, a lot of, for example, yeah, Allen Ginsberg um, lately and trying to figure out if what, if anything, yeah, I can take from him. So I, I think this is really interesting in the context of thinking about going back to archetype. And I, I, when you were talking about that, I was thinking, there is truth in archetypes, so I'd, I'm I'm quite happy with types and archetypes that then do some. Uh, you know, the, I think the key, one of the keywords you mentioned there was growth, and you were talking about it in terms of your your own growth. But that made me think of actually, you know, the the great characters in literature are recognisable, but they have an arc, they grow, and that's one of the things that we have to practice as tellers of stories and as as writers is to, to create a great character, which then and it could be that was maybe one of the reasons why the hero's journey is such a popular kind of concept because the hero has to grow, the characters have to grow, and they can have they have uniqueness and novelty in them. And all of these things you're saying are, in my mind, connecting with those requirements. I think in in really good writing, that actually you've got to, as a person, each of us has to grow, and so in our writing and in in our work, our characters have to grow as well. 
I worry a lot, as I've mentioned, about um, stagnation. But mm. I'm, yeah, I'm interested in character arcs. When I wrote the verse mm. novels, um, they're called Mr. Either-Or, and then the sequel will come out on Mr. Either-Or, All the Rage will come out in 2023. But the character, when we meet him, it's actually in the second person, and you are this character. But when you first meet him, I know it's interesting, he's just a college student, a twenty early 20-something dude who's not particularly bright or charming, but is tough. And then in the course of the stories, he gets a girlfriend, they, she becomes pregnant, he becomes a father, he gets married. And so I, when I, I think I'm done with these series of four stories, two in each book. And when I was trying to figure out how I was going to conclude this, he's looking at his daughter and thinking about what he wants for her in terms of happiness as she grows up. Yeah. But then I realized that the book wasn't about, I mean, the book was about maturation and about growth, but not the daughters. It was about his, mm. right? That he was slow in maturing. He was very mm. immature. And that's, it's very funny, I'd like to think, at certain points, mm. right? Um, but it was also powerful for me mm. in that I realized it was also about me. In that, yeah. um, partly because I'm a poet, partly because I never settled down, um, given my academic situation, I was very slow to mature. I'm still working on it, <laughs> a little tardy. <laughs> yes. And so that brought it together and that it was both personal and the character arc yeah. and related to his hopes for his daughter yeah. as well. Yeah. And so, yes, I have yeah, great respect for um, yeah, short story writers and novelists. One of my favorite poets, W.H. Auden, said he respected novelists and short story writers more than poets um because yeah poets are always trying to in the poem he explains are always trying to go, go run into a mad passion um and frequently say things that are crazy and ridiculous whereas the novelist or the short story has to be able to identify and every and understand the whole range of emotion mm. right mm -hmm. um from the yeah most boring articles in the newspaper to the highest heights of passion. Mm. Yes, he's one of my heroes, your W.H. Auden. So people who are listening to this, most of the people who are listening to this will be genre fiction writers. Um, there will be others, but anyone, I guess, could start writing poetry at, at any point. So if somebody suddenly thinks, hey, I could write poetry, but they're quite, they think that's scary. Mm. Uh, what advice would you give to them? People who, they haven't written poetry for, you know, they might have written angsty poems when they were a teenager, but they haven't yes. written them for years or they've never done it. But how do they how how would they kind of start on that? I discovered oh, I used an imitation method um, when I first got into poetry. And I'll talk about that. And I subsequently learned um, by studying the Greeks and Romans, whom I adore, that they used much the same method where mm -hmm. they just had words and metrical slots. And they'd take words out and put other words in there and substitute and play around. Um, in fact, we have accounts of the poet Catullus um, at, at his writing tables, tablets, he calls them with his friends. And they, it's like they're playing word games, right? Where they, and frequently with Catullus, they'll be substituting obscenities as a kind of joke. And it's, it's yeah, I would have loved to have played with them. It sounds like a lot of fun. Um, but I encourage the imitation method. And so if you have poets, um, you aspiring poets out there, if you have any poets you like, right, you want to start with that and the, your favorite yeah. poems by them yeah. and actually print it out, the poem, um, just the words in a word document. And you can choose lines you especially like in that poem that stand out to you as remarkable. 
and then cut those out of the poem and put them in their own Word document hmm. and then start playing around with them and making them applicable to where you live or to what you want to talk about, right? Um, hmm. This is not going to result in your own poem. This is going to result originally only in imitations. But what you are after in this imitation game is that you frequently get the structure and you get your, an array, um, you get syntax also, right? Word slots, we can call that syntax into which you can put your own words uh, because nothing is harder um, than going, telling someone to go be creative in a vacuum, go write a poem about something. Mm. It's almost overwhelming mm. because mm. there are so many possibilities. I try not to do that as a creative writing instructor. I try to give a launch pad or, um, or something, yes, that will stimulate creativity rather than, oh yeah, over sort of overwhelm them with possibilities. Um, and so similarly here with this imitation method and what you're after then um, as you're playing around with the lines by some poet you like is to replicate simultaneously um, what I call charge. You want in poetry almost each line if not each line, to um, have some little surprise or charge, mm. or I talk about it in terms mm. of electricity in it. Mm. And once you can elicit that for yourself and in a reader, right, then you're able to move on. Once you've done that, uh, the imitation method enough, and you can readily elicit these charges when you want to, then you're ready to move on and you have these structures in your head and you're ready to start writing your own original mm -hmm. poems. Mm -hmm. But I encourage aspiring poets to spend several years, if not longer, using the imitation method. Yes, okay. I, yeah, I worked hours and hours a day at poetry starting from age 18 and I still didn't get anything I wanted to keep. Like, I, you know, I get like maybe a quatrain from my, my, my early 20s that I want to keep. Um, but it was only mid mid to late 20s after I'd been doing it, my goodness, for about a decade wow. that I started consistently getting poems mm. that I wanted to share, I was proud of and mm. wanted to be part of my legacy and wanted to share with the world. And so it takes, yeah, often takes a very, very long time. But that's true, I think, of yeah, any career path in writing, right? There's a long, yeah. generally, there's a long apprenticeship. Yeah, an apprenticeship was the word that sprang to mind, really. It, it is a long apprenticeship, isn't it? To, um, and not one where people need to, should get disheartened. So like, if you're six months in, don't think, oh, this is just, you know, because it's a joyful thing, an apprenticeship, isn't it? It's a joyful thing to discover more of, of how the craft works for you as a person. And I guess there's there's also, so there's, there's getting into writing poetry, but I, th I also wanted to ask you about reading or hearing great poets and um so what poets would you recommend especially perhaps for writers of prose who really want to learn something from from all of the poetic forms that you've been talking about in terms of charge what i was just talking about um what we can also call that intensity i recommend poetry in translation of the great sappho I am in awe of her. She's right in the very beginning of our Western literary tradition, um, the first female author that we have. And when I read through what we have of her, she's just consistently at the height of passion and intensity, right? And that's where I, at least as a lyric poet, right? That's where I want all my poems to be. Right. Mm -hmm. And so she's held up as an ideal to me. Right. Like, you know, I have a pinup of Sappho on my wall. I want to be just <laughs> like you. 
yes, she's 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 my goddess. Um, and so I want to in my lyric poetry, I want to sustain that same intensity. And so I recommend checking out translations of Sappho in particular. And then um, other poets have taught me other things. What you want also then it's useful. Yeah, it would be useful for prose writers. Um, this is more, I guess that was more per personally useful for me. But W.H. Auden, your own W.H. Auden is very useful. And that he has taught me that even when it's, well, even when you're writing a very, very serious poem, like his Shield of Achilles is about the Holocaust, um, for God's sake. It's still, even when you're writing the most serious poem that there can be, it's still all about play. There's still verbal mm. play mm. and gamesmanship, we'll say, um, going mm. on. That mm. even, I know, and it's hard to reconcile. When I look at that, there are lines in his most serious poems that I, I mean, I and I adore him, um, mm. that I, because of the way he's crafted them, that I find um, amusing almost, even in a very serious poem like that. And so what I, that's been good for me to keep me from becoming sterile or barren, to be taught by Auden that mm. it's always, um, there's always some element of play at play when one is writing. And if it's not there, then there's a good possibility that what you're writing will, be, will, will come off as dry to the reader. Okay. So we're coming towards the end of our, our time now. And I wondered if we could just finish by um, you telling us where people could find out more about you and your work. Perhaps you could t tell us a little bit about uh, what you've been doing, you know, that your most recent work your translation project for Baudelaire as well oh got it. yes I would be happy to yes and so in terms of um yes finding me online um yes I have a website it's just my name www.aaronpuchigian.com and then I'm I've, I've really become interested in Twitter lately I'm just at Puchigian on Twitter um, because it's contributed to a sort of revival of the reading of poetry. Okay. The reading of poetry has increased among the younger generations mm. in the United States, and mm. it's been attributed to social media. We, in fact, have a new form of poetry that's limited to fit in a tweet. I believe it's 240 now. Um, or you can fit inside a text message on a phone, right? Mm. And so every form has its constraints, right? Every form has its constraints. And the constraints then of this micro poetry, it is called, right? Mm. Is the length of a tweet or an SMS <laughs> message. And so I'm interested in that um, as a new genre that's reviving poetry mm. for a generation. And so I, I'm on Twitter a lot. And then projects I finished recently, I, yeah, I recently finished that tragedy in verse um, that my goodness took me a long time. And it's modeled on a couple of different protest movements here in the States. One by my friend, to save East River Park in Manhattan and um, another to save, um, to stop a pipeline from going through old growth forest in Virginia. Both of these were of interest to me because in both cases, the protesters lost as they usually do. And that, that's what made it a good theme for a tragedy, right? Mm. Um, and it mm. worked well in that the artificiality of having this, this Greek chorus, this group of people that speaks in unison, right, was not so ridiculously artificial when you have a group of protesters mm. gathered there and they chant in unison. And so I already had ready-made for me a kind of Greek chorus. And so, mm. yes, I'm shifting in to find um, potentially some people to produce that um, okay. in the future. So, so You've got a website, you're on Twitter as well, and people can find out about you and all your stuff there. Yes. That's good. What was that? Can you just tell us that website address again? 
Oh, yes, from my website, yes. www.aaronpuchigian.com. Um, okay. I'll spell it A A R O N P O O C H I G I A N.com. I know it's the name I was born with. <laughs> Too late it's... for a nom de plume. <laughs> <laughs> Don't change it now. It's great. <laughs> Um, Aaron, thank you so much for your time. It's been really interesting talking to you, fascinating to explore a different form from my point of view uh, and, and to enjoy it for what it is and look at the connections with the kind of stuff that I'm, I work in normally. So, yeah, thanks very much. Do appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Creative Writers Toolbelt podcast. You can find out more about the podcast at my website, andrewjchamberlain.com where you can also find details of the Creative Writers Toolbelt Handbook, which takes all the best advice and insights from the early episodes of the podcast and distill them into one volume. I hope this episode has been useful to you on your writing journey. If it has, please do subscribe to the podcast and consider leaving a review as well wherever you downloaded it. Thank you for listening to this episode and goodbye. <laughs>